You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Well, as I've been saying almost every week this year, we have been learning and applying the core values of our church here at Gospel Light. And so over the months of July and August, we've had kind of a combination month. And what I've been doing is preaching through the Beatitudes of Jesus. And we've been learning how to pursue happiness. In fact, that's the title of this sermon series, is The Pursuit of Happiness. And how to experience blessing in your life. Each one of the Beatitudes starts with that word, blessed. Or or that word means happy. And so we're talking about how to be blessed, how to be happy. And at the end of the day, if I'm any kind of pastor, if I'm worth anything, I'm going to want you to be blessed. I want our congregation to be blessed, not just on Sunday morning for an hour and 15 minutes. I want you to be blessed on Monday morning when you go to work. And I want you to experience God's blessing in your homes. I want you to experience God's blessings in your friendships. There's so many ways that beyond this morning service that we pray God would touch and change and transform your life. So Jesus has given us in the Bible, in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, his introductory thoughts are eight things that bring God's blessing in your life. In this sixth beatitude, that's where we're at, number six, it has everything to do with what's on the inside of us. The inside. And what's interesting about that is, It's the opposite of what our culture teaches. Because our culture, if you haven't noticed, is obsessed with the outside. They're obsessed with the appearance, how you look. We seem to be all about image. Everything's about image. We live in a Kardashian world. I didn't even know who the Kardashians were a couple of years ago. Someone had to let me know that, oh, these people are all about appearance. They're all about looks and being beautiful and bright. And if you're beautiful and bright, then guess what? Hey, you're the best. The problem with that is God's not really into appearance. He's not. God's not concerned about your achievements. He's not concerned, concerned about your accomplishments, about your accolades, your acquisitions. God isn't necessarily interested in how educated you are or how rich you are, how popular you are, how famous you are. What God cares about is not your image on the outside. He wants you to be renewed into his image on the inside. And so God cares about your heart. And that's what we're going to see this morning clearly in this beatitude. Beginning with 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, God said this to Samuel, do not look on his appearance. Don't look on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, that's the culture we live in, the outward appearance. But God, he looks on the heart. And that's what the sixth beatitude is all about. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, now what exactly does that mean? 
Well, happiness, obviously, blessed are the pure in heart. Happiness is a heart condition. It's all about being right on the inside. I, I absolutely love how Eugene Peterson had, uh, paraphrases all of these Beatitudes. Without question, it's been just an absolute joy for me to, 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 to quote these little paraphrases to you in these passages. I think this is my all-time favorite in the Beatitudes that Peterson puts forth. Look at it. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind, and your heart put right. Because then you can see God in the outside world. So what is the inside world? What is the heart? What are we talking about here? Well, throughout history, many cultures and spiritual practices have emphasized the importance of things like following your heart, right? Have you ever heard that? Just follow your heart. Or what about this one? Just just listen to your heart. Do what your heart says. But when Jesus speaks of the heart, he's not referring to the physical organ. He's referring to the spiritual heart. This concept is similar to the mind. In fact, in Scripture, oftentimes the mind and the heart are the same thing. While the brain, like the heart, is clearly physical in nature, the existence of our minds as a form of consciousness is universally accepted, even though it cannot be detected on an MRI. So similarly, our spiritual heart embodies a level of consciousness in itself. And this is what Jesus is referring to in this beatitude. Our hearts. Our hearts are the seat of our emotions. Our hearts are the a seat of our, of our love, our passions. And our hearts can actually deceive us. So because of that, clearly God is not teaching about the physical muscle in our bodies. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 and 10 as we continue to introduce the truth. The human heart, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. The human heart is desperately wicked. Really, who knows how bad it it is? But I, the Lord, I search all hearts. I examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards. And here's how I do it. According to what their actions deserve. The heart of man is the master control room of his life. Therefore, Proverbs 4.23 says this, guard your heart. It's this important. This is so critical. I don't know that there's any beatitude, any more meaningful and, and any more uh, purposeful than, than another, but, if, but maybe this one has just a slight advantage Because if the heart is the master control room of our lives, then we should guard our hearts above everything else. For it determines the course of your life. The heart. The heart is the seat of your emotions. Your moral, emotional, and spiritual life. Your motives. Why you do what you do is often revealed in where your heart is. We sing songs, or we've sang songs, we, well, actually, we've heard statements, I should say, first, like, well, they broke my heart, or, Dad, he stole my heart, or, or maybe, like, 
the gentleman that just recently passed away, that famous jazz and pop singer by the name of Tony Bennett, who said, I left my heart in San Francisco. The heart. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying the blessing of life is to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Here's the reward. They will see God. This is the blessing. This is what makes us happy. To see God in all that we do. To see his hand in our lives. To realize the God moments. To see God in the circumstances of life. To see God in the common things in life. To see God in the crisis of life. To see God in the creation. We can see God when we're pure in heart. We're tender to see God. Did you see God this morning? Did you see God in these beautiful testimonies, these baptisms, how God brought them to himself? And as we read those testimonies and rejoiced and celebrated, did you sense the presence of God? You see, the pure in heart person sees God in things. A pure in heart person is conscious of the presence of God more and more. Because we don't see God with the physical eye. We see God with the spiritual eye. We actually comprehend him. The pure in heart are the ones who get up close to God. They experience his presence. They experience his power. They experience his purpose. And they can experience his peace. But all of this is conditioned upon being pure in heart. So, how do we become pure in heart? If everything we're desiring this morning is conditioned upon that, then it must be important. So how can we become pure in heart? Number one, the first thing I believe will put us on that track, get us in that direction is this. Remember that God sees all that we are and all that we do. You see, when we remember that God sees everything, what it does is it motivates us to live pure and clean lives before him. The motivation. The fact that God sees everything. Nothing is hid from God. God sees it all. Listen to Hebrews in chapter 4 in verse number 13. No creature is hidden from his sight. None. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is motivational. Nothing is secret from God. Nothing is a surprise to God. God knows everything about us. And because God knows everything about me and and, and God sees all, it inspires me, it motivates me to want to live a more pure and clean life. Just knowing that God sees everything. Have you ever had someone say, I go ahead and do it. Nobody will ever find out. Nobody will know. Do it. Enjoy it. The problem with that is it's not true. It's a lie. God knows. God sees. Because there's no secrets from God. And because of that, it helps me to choose purity in my life. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3 speaks about everyone who thus hopes in him. And 1 John verse 3, 1 and 2 speaks about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. He's coming back to, to receive us. To, to, we've got a hope called heaven that Jesus is preparing for us. And because of that hope, because we know he's coming back it pure, in him, it pure, he purifies himself, this person, because Jesus is pure. And we want 
when he comes back for him to receive his bride, his people, as pure as possible. And so there's a motivation here. And so I want to understand that I may fool others, but I cannot fool God. I may fake others, but there's no way to fake God. And the amazing thing about it is, and I want to just throw this in there right now so we understand. This is for me, by the way, and I hope it's for you, this this thought. The amazing thing about it is that even though God knows everything that I have done and everything that I will do, here's the amazing thing. He still loves me. That blows me away. God loves me, and he knows everything that I've ever done and everything that I will do. Yet, he still loves me. And that doesn't cause me to say, well, since God loves me no matter what I do, I think I'll just do whatever I want to do. Who cares? God loves me anyway. No. That that, that motivates me. That inspires me. God, you love me so much in spite of the mistakes I've made that I truly don't want to make those mistakes, God. I want to live a pure life. So what is purity of heart? What exactly does pure in heart mean? Think with me for just a moment of pure water. We live in hot springs, right? A lot of good water here. Some of the best water in all the world. In fact, they say this may be the best water in all the world. Pure water. Unadulterated water. Uncontaminated water. Unmixed water. Without contaminants. We hear the term pure gold. But we very rarely ever hear the term anymore pure in heart. It's here in this beatitude, but it's not something we hear very often just in our day-to-day conversations. What we would describe a person as, who is pure in heart, as a person who has integrity. Integrity. Now, integrity does not mean you're perfect. Integrity does not mean that you're sinless, that you make no mistakes. It doesn't mean that. So keep that in mind as we move closer to the message, laying a foundation here. The word integrity. See, because we're confronted with pure in heart right after Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, and right before Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. That's next week. I wonder if that was on purpose. We look here at these three verses and we see, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are the peacemakers. Is that an accident? Or is that on purpose? I think that the placement of those beatitudes are exactly right. Because we're dealing with motives and purity of motives. So let's check out this morning our motives behind why we're being merciful and why we're making peace. The motives behind those two incredible things. Because God is more interested in your attitude than he is in your actions. He's interested in why you do what you do. We see this often in the Bible. In the Bible, there's many examples of people who did the right thing, but they did the right thing with the wrong motivation. Like Judas. Like Ananias and Sapphira in Scripture. Other examples like Amaziah in the Old Testament. And I think most profoundly, the Pharisees did a lot of right things. But with the wrong motivation. And then there's other examples in the Bible that tells us of a number of of people, especially kings who were in Israel, who didn't always do the right thing. But God God said they were a good king. 
Maybe they didn't destroy all the idols. God said destroy all the idols. They didn't quite destroy all the idols. Or maybe there was some hidden sin in their lives, but God still said they're a good king. Why? It's important for us to learn this, that God looks on the heart. God sees everything. God is actually more interested in the direction of your heart than he is in what you do and don't do. Happiness comes when you're the same on the inside as you are on the outside. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is a person of integrity. And the promise of being pure in heart is I get to see God. I get to see God. I get to get up close to God. I get to experience God, comprehend God. I wear glasses. And oftentimes when my glasses are dirty, it makes it very difficult for me to see things. And just the same when I have a dirty heart, it makes it very difficult for me to see the God moments in life. To be pure in heart means to have unmixed motives. Listen to James chapter 4 and verse 8 in the New Living Translation. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. But notice the next words. Wash your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts. Because here is often the problem. Here's what often the problem is with your pastor. Here's what what often the problem can be with with my my family, my, my church family, the people in our pews, the people sitting in churches all over this country. The problem is this. Sometimes our loyalty can be divided between God and the world. Double minded, the King James translation says. Mixed motives. The definition of that is this not a pure heart. Because a person with a pure heart is the same in public as they are in private. You're, you're, you're exactly the same with everybody you talk to, no matter which part of your life you're dealing with. You don't change. You don't wear a mask. You don't pretend you're the real deal. You're not a fake. You're not a phony. Why? Because you remember God sees all. And the first step to seeing God is this. The first step to seeing God is to admit that your heart is sinful and your heart needs to become a pure heart. That means you need to be born again. The first step that these six beautiful people took this morning to getting a pure heart was to become born again. For their hearts to be regenerated, for their lives to be changed and transformed. This morning we witnessed the first step to a pure heart. Oh, listen to me, family. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've never been saved, if you've never been born again, redeemed, restored, if you've never received Christ this morning, I challenge you to trust him as your Savior. He loves you. He died for you. And he offers you a new heart. In fact, he's the best at heart transplants I've ever known. Secondly, not only should we remember that God sees all that we are and do, but secondly, We must take a moment and review our heart motive toward God. What is our heart motive to see God? What is the reason? Our heart deals with motives and inner intents. That's what our heart deals with. Motives and inner intents. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4 in verse number 12. For the word of God is living and active. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged 
sword. The word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God is the discerner of our thoughts, and God is the discerner of the intentions of our hearts. God ponders the heart of man. God knows what our motives are. That's why in Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 12 it says, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? God knows and judges your motives. Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? Will he not repay man according to his work? Simply said, God sees, uh, rather God says that our reward is based on not what we do, or not just what we do, but also on why we do it. It's so important that we have the right motive. Am I sincere in my motives? Do I Am I more concerned about the praise of man or the praise of God? And that's really what it boils down to, the praise of man versus the praise of God. And so to be pure in heart has this idea of sincerity. It has this idea of I'm not pretending. It has this idea of I'm not mixed in anything. I've got integrity. I'm not full of things that are contaminating me. I want to be refined by the refiner's fire, purified. I want God to take the things out of my life that are contaminating my heart so that I can see God. When we went to Israel a few years ago, I, I bought some pottery. I bought this plate, and it's, it's something I've, I've cherished. It's just a, a memorabilia thing from from Israel. But our tour guide told us about pottery as we were on the bus, and she explained some things about the way that they would, in ancient Israel, they, the potters, that some were fake and some were real, and there was a way to tell the difference. So I want to read you what I read here about this. The sculptors that would make these pottery items made many mistakes, and when they did, they would use wax or Syrah, they called it, to hide the defects in their works. Thus, the sculptors without any defects became known as sincera, without wax. That's where we get the English word sincere from. The same thing happened with the ancient Roman pottery. In those days, sometimes potters would accidentally crack their vessels that they were making. If they were sometimes, uh, if they were, if they accidentally cracked their vessels, they were cheats, they were pretenders, they were crooked, and they would deceive the buyer by patching the crack with wax, put it, painting over it, and, and then selling it. And after the people took the jar home or the plate home, they set it in the hot sun, and the wax would melt, and it would start leaking. But then there were honest potters. When they cracked a jar, they would throw it away. When they made a pot in perfect condition, they would stamp it, sincera. Sincere, without wax, the real deal. They guaranteed that their jars didn't have cracks in them and they weren't patched with wax. What the seller made was genuine, it wasn't fake. Often to test if the pottery had any wax, you would hold it up to the sunlight and see if the light came through. See if there were any cracks that had been filled with wax because the light revealed it was sincere. The light 
revealed the fraud. I wonder this morning if our lives were held up to the light, if we would be stamped sincere. Not perfect, not without mistakes, but just sincere. The Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, God gives us three examples of how to check and see if our motives are right. And I, I love the Bible so much because right here in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, in, 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 in a moment in this message where we have a great need because all of us want to have the right motives, I already can tell that. The way you're listening this morning says a whole lot to me about, hey, preacher, we, if we need to have the right motives, how do we know if we do or not? Let me take you to the Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. And in each of these situations, Jesus refers to those who aren't sincere with this word. Are you ready? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. So look with me, if you would, please, at these three things, three examples from the Sermon on the Mount of reviewing your motives. Number one, quickly, what is your motive in giving? How do you know if your motive in giving is right? Matthew 6, 2, he says, Thus, when you give, give to the needy. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites, there it is, pretenders, fakes, not sincera, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. He says, when you give, you should not, be, you should not give to be seen by others. Verse 3, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Almost... It's almost as if you shouldn't know what you're giving. Just, just, just give. So that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret. Notice that word secret. This word secret comes up often in this little paragraph of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount. Your Father who sees in secret. Do it in secret because in secret that's where your Father sees. He knows the truth. Number two, what is your motive in praying? especially when we're praying in public. He says in Matthew 6, 5, when you pray, you must not, must not be like the hypocrites are, the fake, the phony, the pretenders, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. Years ago, I got to know a, a pastor by the name of Adrian Rogers, and he had this book called Adrianisms. You know, Don, like your Don-isms. I love your Don-isms, by the way. Everybody's got a few isms, but Adrian, Adrian Rogers had like a book full. One of his Adrianisms was this. Don't pray to impress. Pray to express. Don't pray to impress others. Pray to express your heart to God. Have you ever heard somebody pray to other people? Father, <clears throat> I pray that, oh God, you might but You know, they sound like they've got a steeple stuck in their throat. It's like, that wasn't the guy I talked to before the service. Why is he praying like that? And then when he finishes praying, it's almost like, wow, what a prayer. Dude's amazing. I could never pray like that. That's awesome. Scripture says he has his reward. Have you ever heard a pat on the back prayer? Lord, I just want to thank you that I've read my Bible through this year already. 
And God, I just want to pray that, uh, you know, I've, I've already been tithing every week faithfully. And, and God, you know, I've witnessed to 15 people this week. And, you know, it's like the whole prayer is just bragging on themselves. And, and God says clearly, they have their reward. Notice, if you would, when you pray, don't pray to impress others. Pray to express God. Look at verse 6 in this same passage. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in, here it is again, secret. For the Father who sees in secret. It's almost like sight in the sixth sense. We have five senses, right? We've got sight, taste, smell, touch, and hearing. And if you were to ask me right now, Pastor, which one of those five would you rather not lose? If you had to lose, not lose one, anybody with me? Sight. I, I, I'm, I'm a, I don't want to lose my sight. I mean, I get it. I, I, I couldn't touch it, but at least I could see it. If I can't taste it, at least I could see it, maybe have a sensation as I eat it. I don't want to lose my sight. But this sight is different. It's not, it's not the sight on the outside. It's an inner sense. It's a sixth sense. It's as if God is saying, I see what no one else can see, what's on the inside. He says, don't be more worried about what other people think about you. Think about, what does God think? Don't be worried whether or not someone likes your prayer. Just focus on pleasing Jesus. This is what it means to be pure in heart. Then what is your motive in fasting? This is the third subject he covers in this Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew 6, 16, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces. Oh, I'll pass. Please, it's okay. Fasting. Struggling. I appreciate it. Just trying to, just trying to do the right thing. No, don't, 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 don't do that. They're doing that so they can be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. Look at me, I'm spiritual. Then Jesus says, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Here it is again, for your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Clearly, what is the point of all these things? To be pure in heart is you keeping it a secret when you do the right thing. To be pure in heart is you keeping it a secret when you do good. The praise of men or the praise of God. The test of a pure heart is can I keep it a secret? Jesus says three times clearly, don't be a hypocrite. He is sick of pretending. I'm wearing my teen revolution wristband. And we gave it to everybody. I saw one of the girls wearing it. I think it was Makana. Wearing it as I baptized it, it just simply says, sick of pretending. It was a youth song that came out about three years ago. And it says this, all of my best friends are sick of pretending. We want the truth. We just want the truth. And I believe this world is sick of pretending. They want the truth. And you and I have an opportunity to live that kind of a life with pure hearts and be sick of pretending. Because the opposite of a pure heart is someone who is a hypocrite. So don't fake it. Have a pure heart. Happiness comes when you're the same on the inside as you are on the outside. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's the inside. Number three, and I'm done. Thirdly, I want you to, I want you to do this. I want you to realign 
your heart's priorities so you can see God. You know, oftentimes when we need to make a change in our lives, doesn't it really boil down to our priorities? Anybody with me? What's first place in my life? What needs to be first place in my life? So if I can find out what needs to be first place in my life, and it's not, then I just need to realign my priorities to make sure what needs to be first place is first place. And if I want to have a pure heart, I need to realign my priorities to make sure that God is first. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Pretty simple, right? I mean, that's, that's putting out there black ink on white paper. That's the first of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like God wants first place. Amen? Sounds like God doesn't want any rivals. Familiar song, isn't it? You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. God, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. God, you have no rival in my life. He should be first place. Whether it's your career, your husband, your wife, your kids. You say, wait a minute, before that? Yes. Before all of those things is God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. A God is anything that is first place in your life. My wife is not to be first place. My kids are not to be first place. This church is not to be first place. My career is not to be first place. My bank account is not to be first place. God is to be first place. So how do I know what my priorities are? Well, let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's a great sermon. And in this sermon, he gives us three tests all found in the Sermon on the Mount to know what our priorities are. Number one, look at your activities. Where do I invest my time and my money? Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. If you do that, remember, moth will, moth will and rust will destroy and thieves will break through and steal. So here's what I want you to do, followers of Jesus. I want you to lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Don't pile up treasures on earth. Rather, keep your treasures in heaven. Wherever you put your investment, that's where you put your heart. That's clear. This is what Scripture teaches. So what is first place in my life? I want to be be able to answer Jesus, but regardless of what I say, where I spend my time and where I spend my money determines what is first place in my life. That's why the purpose of tithing is to teach us to put God first in our lives. I I learned that at at a young age, just as a very impressionable 13-year-old Christian, I began to hear about this idea of giving God the first fruits and, and, and bringing that to the church and, and, and giving that, trusting God with my finances and bringing my tithe 
to the church. I learned that early, and we're going to be talking about that more in our next core value, L-I-G, light L-I-G. Generosity, that's the next core value, generosity is our way of life. When I give the first 10% of my money back to God, here's what I'm doing. I'm remembering that it all came from Him in the first place. Everything I have came from Him. Tithing is a test of integrity. One of the ways God tests my integrity is through tithing. And I I pastored for 31 years, so I've heard all the excuses, and my heart breaks for the excuses because I know ultimately it's just not trusting God. Sometimes you'll hear excuses of where, where, where people want to argue about, well, it was an Old Testament thing. And there's, there's a nice debate you can have there. But, you know, at the end of the day, I have found, find the debate on, on giving, on tithing, oftentimes ends up becoming less about legalism and more just about excuses. Oftentimes I hear the excuse, well, I just, I just don't really know if I trust how they're going to spend the money. And of course, I'm thinking, well, I would never go to a church that I, I couldn't have at least some confidence. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? I mean, I don't think you could find a church where you could 100% put your trust in man. Man, man makes mistakes. You say, Pastor, in 31 years, do you think you've ever uh, had any mismanagement of funds here? Yes. In 31 years and 1,500 Sundays, and I can assure you, we have not spent every dollar perfectly. I do believe we have more accountability now than we've ever had before. We have seven elders. We have an elder assigned to Jeff Manthe, who, by the way, I think is one of the most honest and men full of integrity I've ever met. I mean, listen, to get a penny out of Jeff, it's, it's, it's crazy. A penny. Ask any staff member. You walk in his office with fear and trembling. Jeff, I need a penny. Get out of my office. Talk to the elders. I'm exaggerating a little bit. I think we've got the best situation we've ever had set up. And yet every now and then, well, I'm just not sure, Pastor. My interpretation of that is it's an excuse. Tithing is a test of our integrity. Do I trust God with my finances? Do I put him first, the first day of the week, the, the, the first part of my money, the first part of my day? Is God first? Number two, look at your anxieties. This is how we can reprioritize our lives. What do I worry about? You can tell a lot about a person by what they worry about. Am I right? Matthew 6, 25 says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. In other words, quit worrying. (laughs) And then he lists five of the top things people worry about. And what's crazy is this was 2,000 years ago. It's still the top five. Still the top five. Number one, finances. In Matthew 6, 24, the verse before, verse 25, where he says, don't be anxious. He says, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one or love the other. He'll either be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Secondly, food. We worry about food. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food? We worry about food. I mean, we put so much time and effort and concern into food, and I'm all for, to an extent, an understanding of that, but I do believe sometimes this becomes an idol in our lives. Fitness. 
Verse 27, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? We're so obsessed with fitness as if we can add an hour to our lifespan. And sometimes I see us more more determined to not miss a fitness day at the gym or hour at the gym than we do our time with God. Fashion. Verse 28, why are you anxious about clothing? Why are we so concerned about keeping up with the Kardashians? Who cares? Well, what's the big deal about the culture? And I just got to keep up with the culture. I just got to fit in. I want to wear this. I want to look like this. This is just what everybody else looks like. And I want to look like... Well, have we ever considered a little bit, just time out, can we talk a little bit about what does God think? Is modesty important to God? Are there things we need to talk to our children about that say, wait a minute, time out. I, I get you want to fit in, but let's, let's just, in an effort to make sure you're comfortable, can we talk about putting God first? What about the future? He says in verse 34, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Don't worry about the future. God's got you. If you're worrying about any of these things, what it could mean is that God is not first in your life. It could mean that you have a misplaced priority. So God's giving us something to think about. Number three, and I'm done. Look at your ambitions. Look at your ambitions. Whatever the number one goal in my life is, that is my God. My goals reveal the direction of my heart. Matthew 6 says this, For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Pay close attention to that word seek, because here it is again. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Notice the word seek there. The word seek means ambition. What are you looking for? What is the driving ambition of your life? What are you seeking for? What are you going after? What are you always looking for? Is it to see God? Don't be always looking for what everybody else is looking for. What does God want? I find that many Christians have the same ambitions as unbelievers and they've bought into the culture, they've bought into the world's system. And as a result of that, I feel as if our churches are full of people with stress and headaches and problems. Because if we're not careful, our ambitions are what is driving us to become like the culture. And if we're not careful, we don't think about this and meditate on this for a while. I think it just raises our stress level and our headaches and our, we become unhealthy. I had one of the most uh, encouraging conversations, and I'll close with this, with my son Ezekiel about uh, two weeks ago. He didn't get to go to Teen Revolution this year because he was, uh, he just got married. He's young. He's trying to figure life out, trying to find out, you know, how to pay his electric bill. He, his first electric bill, he called me. He said, Dad, it's like 120 bucks. Is that right? <laughs> He's never paid one before in his life until last week. He's trying to figure it all out. 
he called me. He said he was heading back from a wedding in Dallas that he went to, he, and he should have. He, he committed to it, so he couldn't make it to Teen Revolution, which was the first one he hasn't made in his lifetime. So it was hard, but he did the right thing. Right, he should have kept his commitment. He said, yeah, Dad, he said I was there, and he said uh, it was interesting. I said, what do you mean, son? Tell, tell me about it. He said, well, you know, Dad, I, I was just noticing the I was with a bunch of guys. I didn't know anybody. I was, I was meeting all these guys, and, and, and at the event, a lot of times they, at the rehearsal or the reception, they would slip out because they'd have a Zoom call to figure out where the stock market was going or how they were spending their money or what was happening. And, they, and, and I would just sit there and think, gee, I got nothing to do but go teach at a Christian school and coach a small basketball team. And he said for a minute there, I was a little disillusioned. I was like, you know, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? I mean, it just seems kind of insignificant. I mean, I don't, I don't have a lot of, to worry. I, 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 that's, and I'm on, my, my salary's not to where I can go buy a house or a car right now. I'm just kind of, but he said, Dad, it hit me. The most important thing is that I'm in the center of God's will. If that's to be on the stock market, I want to be there. If that's to own a business, I want to be there. But if that's to stand in a Christian school and teach, I want to be there. I didn't have to say anything. I just said this. Amen, son. You're learning. You're learning. It's not about what the title of your profession is. It's about putting God first. It's about pursuing God it's not about your paycheck. It's about the fact that you're in the center of God's will. Church family, God says, set your heart first on doing what God wants you to do. And all these things, all these things will be added to you. I want you to know I'm not perfect. As your pastor, I want to be the first to admit that I'm not always unselfish. I'm not. I want to be. But I'm not. Sometimes I listen to gossip. I shouldn't. And I really don't want to. I got to be honest. I've been guilty. I'm not always kind to everybody. I want to be kind to everybody, but I'm not. I don't always keep my promises. I want to, but I don't. I don't always do my best in everything. I I should. But I'm just being honest. I don't. But in the deepest part of my heart, I want to do the right thing. I really do. I want to do the right thing. And God is more interested in your heart than your sins. You're never going to be perfect, you're never going to be sinless. But you can sin less. You can't clean up your own heart. If you could, Jesus would not have had to come from heaven and and die for your sins. But I want to recommend to you a heart specialist. His name is Dr. Jesus. And he's the best. He's a professional. He's never lost a patient. 
And if you want this morning, he'd like to give you a new life. And it starts with a heart transplant. Maybe we need to do what David did in Psalm 51. David had the most shattering experience of his life. David had committed adultery with a man's wife and then had the man murdered. It was awful. David was a murderer and an adulterer. He felt awful. And he said this in Psalm 51. He cried out, Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. This morning, could we pray that God would create in us a clean heart, purify us with his refining fire? And if you're here this morning and you desire a pure heart, I encourage you to take a moment in worship in your seat or at the front, at the altar. We'll be here waiting if you need someone to pray with you. I'd love to do that. So let's stand together, shall we? And let's pray together. As we've been praying through the Beatitudes, let's pray together this prayer on the screen that I've written for us. Here we go. Father, help me to be more aware of your presence and to realize that you are everywhere and you can see everything. Father, thank you for loving me. Even though you know me completely, you know every single thing I've ever done. God, I want a new heart. I want a pure heart. Like David, I ask you to create in me a clean, new heart filled with clean thoughts and right desires. I want to realign my priorities with you, Jesus. I want to put you first place in my life. You said if I will set my heart first on you, that all these other things will come to me as a matter of choice. You'll help me prioritize my life. You will become the center of my life. Help me to be more concerned with pleasing you than with pleasing people. In Jesus' name, amen.